Section 7 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Expedition to Mount St. Elias, Alaska, by Israel C. Russell, Part 2. Narrative of the St. Elias Expedition of 1890, Part 1. A long-cherished desire to study the geography, geology, and glaciers of the region around Mount St. Elias was finally gratified when, in the summer of 1890, the National Geographic Society made it possible for me to undertake an expedition to that part of Alaska. The expedition was organized under the joint auspices of the National Geographic Society and the United States Geological Survey, but was greatly assisted by individuals who felt an interest in the extension of geographic knowledge. For the inception of exploration and for securing the necessary funds, credit is due Mr. Willard D. Johnson. The names of those who subscribe to the Exploration Fund of the Society are as follows. Boynton Leach, Henry Gannett, Everett Hayden, Charles J. Bell, Richardson Clover, J. S. Diller, C. M. McCartney, J. W. Powell, C. A. Williams, J. G. Judd, Willard D. Johnson, A. Graham Bell, Israel C. Russell, Gardiner G. Hubbard, Gilbert Thompson, A. W. Greeley, Harry King, J. W. Dobbins, Morris Bien, J. W. Hayes, William B. Powell, Edmund Alton, Z. T. Carpenter, Bailey Willis, Charles Nordhoff, E. S. Hosmer, Rogers Burney, Jr. I was chosen by the Board of Managers of the National Geographic Society and by the Director of the United States Geological Survey to take charge of the expedition and to carry on geological and glacial studies. Mr. Mark B. Kerr, topographer on the Geological Survey, was assigned as an assistant with the duty of making a topographical map of the region explored. Mr. E. S. Hosmer of Washington, D.C. volunteered his services as general assistant. Footnote. Copies of all instructions governing the work of the expedition are given in Appendix A. Mr. Kerr left Washington on May 24th for San Francisco, where he made arrangements for his special work, and reported to me at Seattle on June 15th. I left Washington on May 25th and went directly to Seattle, where the necessary preparations for exploring an unknown and isolated region were made. From the large number of frontiersmen and sailors who applied for positions on the expedition, seven men were selected as camphands. The foreman of this force was J. H. Christie of Seattle, who had spent the previous winter in charge of an expedition in the Olympian Mountains and was well-versed in all that pertains to frontier life. The other camphands were J. H. Crumback, L. S. Doney, W. L. Lindsley, William Partridge, Thomas Stamey, and Thomas White. The individual members of the party will be mentioned frequently during this narrative, but I wish to state at the beginning that very much of the success of the enterprise was due to the hard and faithful work of the camphands, to each one of whom I feel personally indebted. Two dogs, Bud and Tweed, belonging to Mr. Christie, also became members of the expedition. All camp supplies, including tents, blankets, rations, etc., were purchased at Seattle. Rations for ten men for one hundred days on the basis of the subsistence furnished by the United States Geological Survey were purchased and suitably packed for transportation in a humid climate. Twenty-five tin cans were obtained, each measuring six by twelve by fourteen inches, 
and in each a mixed ration sufficient for one man for fifteen days was packed and hermetically sealed these rations thus secured against moisture and in convenient shape for carrying on the back or packing were for use above the timber line where cooking was possible only by means of oil stoves the remainder of the supplies intended for use where fuel for camp fires could be obtained were secured either in tin cans or in canvas sacks for cooking above the timber line two double wick oil stoves were provided the usual cast iron bases being replaced by smaller reservoirs of tin in order to avoid unnecessary weight coal oil was carried in five gallon cans but a few rectangular cans holding one gallon each were provided for use while on the march subsequent experience proved that this arrangement was satisfactory four seven by seven tents with ridge ropes and two pyramidal nine by nine center pole tents with flies were provided all made of cotton drilling the smaller tents were for use in the higher camps and the larger ones for the base camps the tents were as light as seemed practicable and were found to answer well the purpose for which they were intended each man was supplied with one double hudson bay blanket a waterproof coat a waterproof hat the most serviceable being the sou'westers used by seamen and an alpenstock footnote light rubber cloth was ordered from san francisco for the purpose of allowing each man a waterproof sheet to place under his blankets but was not received in time to be used each man also carried a sheet made of light duck seven feet square to protect his blankets and to be used as a shelter tent if required each member of the party was also required to have heavy boots or shoes and suitable woolen clothing each man was furnished with two pieces of hemp cod line fifty feet in length to be used in packing blankets and rations the lines were doubled many times so as to distribute the weight on the shoulders and were connected with two leather straps for buckling about the package to be carried the cod lines were used instead of ordinary pack straps for the reason that they distribute the weight on the shoulder over a broader area and also because they can be made immediately available for climbing crossing streams etc when required several extra lines of the same material were taken as a reserve or to be used in roping the party together when necessary several of the party carried rifles for each of which a hundred rounds of fixed ammunition were issued two ice axes for the party were also provided a canvas boat was made by the men while en route for the field but there was no occasion to use it except as a cover for a cache left at one of the earlier camps subsequent experience showed that snowshoes and one or two sleds would have been serviceable but these were not taken our instruments were furnished by the united states geological survey the list included one transit one gradienter one sextant two prismatic compasses one compass clinometer four pocket thermometers two psychrometers, one field glass, two mercurial barometers, three aneroids, steel tape lines, and two photographic outfits. From Seattle to Sitka Preparations having been completed, the expedition sailed from Seattle June 16th on the steamer Queen, belonging to the Pacific Coast Steamship Company, in command of Captain James Carroll, and reached Sitka on the morning of June 24th. This portion of her voyage was through the justly celebrated inland passage of British Columbia and southeastern Alaska, and was in every way delightful. We touched at Victoria and Wrangell, and after threading the Wrangell Narrows, entered Frederick Sound, where the first floating ice was seen. The bergs were from a neighboring glacier, which enters the sea at the head of a deep inlet, too far away to be seen from the course followed by the Queen. The route northward led through Stevens Passage, and afforded glimpses of glaciers both on the mainland and on Admiralty Island. 
in taku inlet several hours were spent in examining the glaciers two of which come down to the sea one on the western side of the fjord an ice stream known as the norris glacier descends through a deep valley and expands into a broad ice foot on approaching the water though it is not washed by the waves owing to an accumulation of mud about its extremity another ice stream is the taku glacier situated at the head of the inlet it comes boldly down to the water and ends in a splendid sea cliff of azure blue some two hundred fifty feet high the adjacent waters are covered with icebergs shed by the glacier some of the smaller fragments were hoisted on board the queen for table use the bold rocky shores of the inlet are nearly bare of vegetation and indicate by their polished and striated surfaces that glaciers of far greater magnitude than those now existing formerly flowed through this channel after leaving taku inlet a day was spent at juneau and then the queen steamed up lynn canal to pyramid harbor near its head for picturesque beauty this is probably the finest of the fjords of alaska several glaciers on each side of the inlet come now nearly to the sea and all the higher mountains are buried beneath perpetual snow on returning from lynn canal the queen visited glacier bay and here passengers were allowed a few hours on shore at the muir glacier the day of our visit was unusually fine and a splendid view of the great ice stream with its many tributaries was obtained from a hilltop about a thousand feet high on its eastern border the glacier discharges into the head of the bay and forms a magnificent line of ice cliffs over two hundred feet high and three miles in extent this portion of the coast of alaska has been described by several writers yet its bleak shores are still in large part unexplored to the west of the bay rise the magnificent peaks of the fairweather range from which flow many great ice streams the largest of the glaciers descending from these mountains into glacier bay is called the pacific glacier like the muir glacier it discharges vast numbers of icebergs into the sea the day after leaving glacier bay we arrived at sitka and as soon as practicable called on lieutenant commander o f Fahrenholt of the u s s pinta who had previously received instructions from the secretary of the navy to take us to yakutat bay we also paid our respects to the governor and other alaskan officials and made a few final preparations for the start westward from sitka to yakutat bay all of our effects having been transferred to the pinta we put to sea early on the morning of june twenty fifth honorable lyman e knapp governor of alaska taking advantage of the sailing of the pinta accompanied us on the voyage mr henry borzen census enumerator also joined us for the purpose of obtaining information concerning the indians at yakutat the morning we left sitka was misty with occasional showers but even these unfavorable conditions could not obscure the beauty of the wild densely wooded shore along which we steamed the weather throughout the voyage was thick and foggy and the sea rough we anchored in demonte bay the first indentation on the eastern shore of yakutat bay late the following afternoon without having obtained so much as a glimpse of the magnificent scenery of the rugged fairweather range at yakutat we found two small indian villages one on kontok island and the other on the mainland to the eastward both shown on plate eight the village on kontok island is the older of the two and consists of six houses built along the water's edge the houses are made of planks each hewn from a single log after the manner of the blinkets generally they are rectangular and have openings in the roofs with wind guards for the escape of smoke the fires around which the families gather are built in the centers of the spaces below the houses are entered by means of oval openings elevated two feet above the ground on platforms along their fronts 
in the interior of each there is a rectangular space about twenty feet square surrounded by raised platforms the outer portions of which are shut off by partitions and divided into smaller chambers the canoes used at yakutat are each hewn from a single spruce log and are good examples of the boats in use throughout southern alaska they are of all sizes from a small craft scarcely large enough to hold a single indian to graceful boats forty or fifty feet in length and capable of carrying a ton of merchandise with a dozen or more men they have high overreaching stems and sterns which give them a picturesque gondola-like appearance the village on the mainland is less picturesque if such a term may be allowed than the group of houses already described but it is of the same type near at hand along the shore to the southward there are two log houses one of which is used at present as a mission by rev carl j hendrickson and his assistant the other being occupied as a trading post by sitka merchants the yakutat indians are the most westerly branch of the great blinket family which inhabits all of southeastern alaska and a portion of british columbia in intelligence they are above the average of indians generally and are of a much higher type than the native inhabitants of the older portion of the united states they are quick to learn the ways of the white man and are especially shrewd in bargaining they are canoe indians par excellence and pass a large part of their lives on the water in quest of salmon seals and sea otter during the summer of our visit about thirty sea otter were taken they are usually shot in the primitive manner with copper-pointed arrows although repeating rifles of the most improved patterns are owned by the natives in spite of existing laws against selling breech-loading arms to indians the fur of the sea otter is acknowledged to be the most beautiful and is the most highly prized of all pelts those taken at yakutat during our visit were sold at an average price of about seventy-five dollars this together with the sale of less valuable skins and the money received for baskets etc made by the women for the tourist trade in sitka brought a considerable revenue to the village improvident like nearly all indians the yakutat villagers soon spend at the trading post the money earned in this way the yakutats belong without question to the thlinket stock but visits from tribes farther westward who travel in skin boats are known to have been made and it seems probable that some mixture of thlinket and inuit blood may occur in the natives at yakutat but if such admixture has occurred the inuit element is so small that it escapes the notice of one not skilled in ethnology we found mr hendrickson most kind and obliging and are indebted to him for many favors and great assistance arrangements were made with him for reading a base barometer three times a day during july and august he also assisted us by acting as an interpreter and in hiring indians and canoes the weather continued thick and stormy after reaching yakutat bay and captain Farenholt did not think it advisable to take his vessel up the main inlet where many dangers were reported to exist a canoe having been purchased from the trader and others hired from the indians a start was made from the head of yakutat bay early on the morning of june twenty eighth in company with two of the pinta's boats loaded with supplies under the command of ensign c w youngen canoe trip up yakutat bay bidding good-bye to our friends on the pinta to whom we were indebted for many favors we started for our trip up the bay in a pouring rainstorm our way at first led through the narrow placid waterways dividing the islands on the eastern side of the bay the islands and the shores of the mainland are densely wooded and appeared picturesque and inviting even through the veil of mist and rain that shrouded them the forests consist principally of spruce trees so dense and having such a tangle of underbrush that it is only with the greatest difficulty that one can force a way through them 
while the ground beneath the forest and even the trunks and branches of the living trees are covered and festooned with luxuriant growths of mosses and lichens our trip along these wooded shores but half revealed through the drifting mist was novel and enjoyable in spite of discomforts due to the rain we rejoiced at the thought that we were nearing the place where the actual labors of the expedition would begin we were approaching the unknown visions of unexplored regions filled with new wonders occupied our fancies and made us eager to press on about noon on the first day we pitched our tents on a strip of shingle skirting the shore of the mainland to the east of night island the painted boats spread their white wings and sailed away to the southward before a freshening wind and our last connection with civilization was broken as one of the frontiersmen of our party remarked we were at home once more it may appear strange to some that any one could apply such a term to a camp on the wild shore of an unexplored country but the bohemian spirit is so strong in some breasts and the restraint of civilization so irksome that the homing instinct is reversed and leads irresistibly to the wilderness and to the silent mountain tops the morning after arriving at our first camp kerr christie and hendrickson with all the camp hands except two went on with the canoes and in a few hours reached the entrance of disenchantment bay they found a camping place about twelve miles ahead on a narrow strip of shingle beneath the precipices of point esperanza and there established our second camp my necessary delay at camp one was utilized so far as possible in learning what i could concerning the adjacent country and in making a beginning in the study of its geology our camp was at the immediate base of the mountains and on the northeastern side of the wide plateau bordering the continent the plateau stretches southeastward for twenty or thirty miles and is low and heavily forested the eastern shore of the bay near our first camp is formed of bluffs about one hundred fifty feet high which have been eaten back by the waves so as to expose fine sections of the strata of sand gravel and boulders of which the plateau is composed all the lowlands bordering the mountains have apparently a common history and doubtless owe their origin principally to the deposition of debris brought from the mountains by former glaciers when this material was deposited or soon afterward the land was depressed about one hundred fifty feet lower than at present as is shown by a terrace cut along the base of the mountains at that elevation the steep mountain face extending northwestward from camp one to the mouth of disenchantment bay bears evidence of being the upheaved side of a fault of quite recent origin the steep inclination and shattered condition of the rocks along this line are evidently due to the crushing which accompanied the displacement in the wild gorge above our first camp a small glacier was found descending to within five hundred feet of the sea level and giving rise to a wild roaring stream of milky water efforts to reach the glacier were frustrated by the density of the dripping vegetation and by the clouds that obscured the mountains a canoe trip was made to a rocky islet between night island and the mainland toward the north the islet like the rocks in the adjacent mountain range is composed of sandstone greatly shattered and seamed and nearly vertical in attitude its surface was densely carpeted with grass and brilliant flowers many seabirds had their homes there from its summit a fine view was obtained of the cloud-capped mountains toward the northeast of the dark forest covering night island and of the broad plateau toward the southeast some of the most charming effects in the scenery of the forest-clad and mist-covered shores of alaska are due to the wreaths of vapor ascending from the deep forests during the interval in which the warm sunlight shines through the clouds and on the day of our visit to the islet the forests when not concealed by mist 
sent up smoke-like vapor wreaths of many fantastic shapes to mingle with the clouds in which the higher mountains disappeared at camp one the personnel of the party was unexpectedly reduced mr hosmer was ill and remained with me at camp instead of pushing on with kerr and christie and the weather continuing stormy he concluded to abandon the expedition and return to the mission at port mulgrave having secured the services of an indian who chanced to pass our camp in his canoe mr hosmer bade us good-bye ensconced himself in the frail craft and started for sunnier lands it was subsequently learned that he reached yakutat without mishap and a few days later sailed for sitka in a small trading schooner our force during the remainder of the season not including mr hendrickson and the indians whose services were engaged for only a few days numbered nine men all told on the evening of june thirtieth we had a bright campfire blazing on the beach to welcome the returning party near sunset a canoe appeared in the distance and a shot was fired as it came round a bend in the shore we felt sure that our companions were returning and piled driftwood on the roaring campfire to cheer them after their hard day's work on the water as the canoe approached each dip of the paddle sent a flash of light to us and we could distinguish the men at their work but we soon discovered that it was occupied not by our own party but by indians returning from a seal hunt in disenchantment bay they brought their canoe high on the beach and made themselves at home about our campfire there were seven or eight well-built young men in the party all armed with guns in former times such an arrival would have been regarded with suspicion but thanks to the somewhat frequent visits of war vessels to yakutat and also to the labors of missionaries the wild spirits of the indians have been greatly subdued and reduced to semi-civilized condition during the past quarter of a century just as the long twilight deepened into night another craft came around the distant headland but less swiftly than the former one and soon our picturesque canoe with christie at the stern steering with a paddle in true indian fashion grated on the shingle beach christie has spent many years of his life with the indians of the northwest and has adopted some of their habits on beginning frontier life once more he discarded the hat of the white man and wore a blue cloth tied tightly round his forehead and streaming off in loose ends behind the change was welcome for it added to the picturesque appearance of the party the men weary with their long row against currents and headwinds greatly enjoyed the campfire our indian visitors after lunching lightly on the leaf stalks of a plant resembling celery archangelica which grows abundantly everywhere on the lowlands of southern alaska departed toward yakutat supper was served in one of the large tents and we all rolled ourselves in our blankets for the night the next day july first we abandoned camp one passed by camp two and late in the afternoon reached the northwestern side of yakutat bay opposite point esperanza our trip along the wild shore against which a heavy surf was breaking was full of novelty and interest the mountains rose sheer from the water to a height of two or three thousand feet about their bases like dark drapery following all the folds of the mountainside ran a band of vegetation but the spruce forests had mostly disappeared and only a few trees were seen here and there in the deeper canyons the position of the terrace along the base of the mountain first noticed at camp one could be plainly traced although densely covered with bushes the mountain peaks above were all sharp and angular indicating at a glance that they had never been subjected to glacial action the sandstone and shales forming the naked cliffs are fractured and crushed and are evidently yielding rapidly to the weather but the characteristic red color due to rock decay could not be seen the prevailing tone of the mountains when not buried beneath vegetation or covered with snow is a cold gray 
bright warm summer skies are needed to reveal the variety and beauty of that forbidding region our large canoe behaved well although heavily loaded sometimes the wind was favorable when an extemporized sail lessened the fatigue of the trip the landing on the northwestern shore was effected through a light surf on a sandy beach heavily encumbered with icebergs as it was hazardous to beach the large canoe with its load of boxes and bags the heavy freight was transferred a few pieces at a time to smaller canoes each manned by a single indian and all was safely landed beyond the reach of the breakers camp three was established on the sandy beach just above the reach of the tide and near the mouth of a roaring brook the driftwood along the shore furnished abundant fuel for a blazing campfire our tents were pitched and once more we felt at home two canoes were dispatched in care of doni to the camp on the opposite shore camp two with instructions to bring over the equipments left there. Kerr went over also, for the purpose of making a topographic station on the bluff-forming Point Esperanza, should the morrow's weather permit. It was curious to note the care which our Indians took of their canoes. Not only were they drawn high up on the beach, out of the reach of all possible tides, but each canoe was swathed in wet cloths, especially at the prow and stern, to prevent them from drying and cracking. The canoes, being fashioned from a single spruce log, are especially liable to split if allowed to dry thoroughly the day after our arrival all of our party and all of our camp outfit were assembled at camp three mr hendrickson and our indian friends took their departure and the work for which we had come so far was actually begun base camp on the shore of yakutat bay about the tents at camp three the rank grass grew waist-high sheltering the strawberries and dwarf raspberries that bloomed beneath a little way back from the shore clumps of alders interspersed with spruce trees marked the beginning of the forest which covered the hills toward the west and southwest toward the north rose rugged mountains their summits shrouded in mist and the steep gorges on their sides the ends of glaciers gleamed white like foaming cataracts descending from cloudland the day following our arrival dawned bright and beautiful every cloud vanished from the mountains as if by magic revealing their magnificent summits in clear relief we found ourselves at the base of a rugged mountain range, extending far southeastward and northwestward, its first rampart so breached as to allow the waters of the ocean to extend into the very midst of the great peaks beyond. Through this opening, we had a splendid view of the snow-clad mountains filling the northern sky and stretching away in lessening perspective toward the east until they blended with the distant clouds. Topographic work was started and the preparation of packs for the journey inland was begun at once, and all hands were kept busy. A baseline was measured by Mr. Kerr, and a beginning was made in the development of a system of triangulation which was carried on throughout the season. Our stay at the camp on the shore extended over a week, and enabled us to become familiar with many of the changes in the rugged scenery surrounding Yakutat Bay. The bay itself was covered with icebergs for most of the time. Owing to the prevailing winds and the action of shore currents, the ice accumulated on the coast adjacent to our camp. For many days, the beach toward both the north and the south, as far as the eye could reach, was piled high with huge masses of blue and white ice. When the bay was rough, the surf roared angrily among the stranded bergs, and dashing over them, formed splendid sheets of form, while on bright sunny days the bay gleamed and flashed in the sunlight as the summer winds gently rippled its surface and the thousands of icebergs crowding the azure plain seemed a numberless fleet of ferry-boats with crystal hulls and fantastic sails of blue and white 
when the long summer days drew to a close and gave place to the soft northern twilight which in summer lasts until the glow of the returning sun is seen in the east the sea and mountains assumed a soft mysterious beauty never realized by dwellers in more southern climes the hours of twilight were so enchanting the varying shades and changing tints on the mighty snow-fields robing the mountains were so exquisite in their gradations that even when weary with many hours of toil the explorer could not resist the charm and paced the sandy shore until the night was far spent sometimes in the twilight hours long after the sun disappeared the summits of the majestic peaks toward the east were transformed by the light of the afterglow into mountains of flame as the light faded the cold shadow of the world crept higher and higher up the crystal slopes until only the topmost spires and pinnacles were gilded by the sunset glow at such times when our eyes were weary with watching the gorgeous transformation of the snow-covered mountains and were turned to the far-reaching seaward view we would be startled by the sight of a vast city with battlements towers minarets and domes of fantastic architecture rising where we knew that only the berg-covered waters extended the appearance of these phantom cities was a common occurrence during the twilight hours although we knew at once that the ghostly spires were but a trick of the mirage yet their ever-changing shapes and remarkable mimicry of human habitations were so striking that they never lost their novelty and they were never the same on two successive evenings one of the most common deceptions of the mirage is the transformation of icebergs into the semblance of fountains gushing from the sea and expanding into graceful sheaf-like shapes the strangest freaks due to the refraction of light on hot deserts which are usually supposed to be the home of the mirage do not excite the traveller's wonder so much as the phantom cities seen and the uncertain twilight amid the ice-packs of the north when the slowly deepening twilight transformed mountains and seas into a dreamland picture the harvest moon strangely out of place in far northern skies spread a sheet of silver behind the dark headlands toward the southeast and then slowly appeared not rising boldly toward the zenith but tracing a low arch in the southern heavens to soon disappear into the sea toward the southwest brief as were her visits they were always welcome and always brought the feeling that distant homes were nearer when the same light was visible to us and to loved ones far away the soft moonlight dimmed the twilight the afterglow faded from the highest peaks and the short northern night came on after returning from the mountains late in september we were again encamped on the northwestern shore of yakutat bay a heavy northeast storm swept down from the mountains and awakened all the pent-up fury of the waves the beach was crowded with bergs among which the surf broke in great sheets of feathery foam clouds of spray were dashed far above the icy ramparts carrying with them fragments of ice torn from the bergs over which they swept while the stranded bergs rocked violently to and fro as the waves burst over them sometimes the raging waters angered by opposition lifted the bergs in their mighty arms and turning them over and over dashed them high on the beach it seemed as if spirits of the deep unable to leave the water world were hurling their weapons at unseen enemies on the land the fearful grandeur of the raging waters and of the dark storm-swept skies was perhaps enhanced by the fact that the landward blowing gale combined with the rising tide threatened to sweep away our frail home each succeeding wave as it rolled shoreward sent a sheet of foam roaring and rushing up the beach and creeping nearer and nearer to our shelter until only a few inches intervened between the high water line and the crest of the sand bank that protected us 
the limit was reached at last however and the water slowly retreated leaving a fringe of ice within arm's length of our tents the wild scene along the shore was especially grand at night the stranded bergs seen through the gloom formed strange moving shapes like vessels in distress the white banners of spray seemed signals of disaster an armada more numerous than ever sailed from the ports of spain was being crushed and ground to pieces by the hoarse wind and raging surf sleep was impossible even if one cared to rest when sea and air and sky were joined in fierce conflict our tents spared by the waves were dashed down by the fierce north winds and a lake in the forest toward the west overflowed its banks and discharged its flooding waters through our encampment at last tired and discomforted we abandoned our tents and retreated to the neighboring forest and there took refuge in a cabin built near where a coal seam outcrops and remained until the storm had spent its force but i have anticipated and must return to the thread of my narrative end of section seven